Today's guest is Dr. Christopher Metzler, and he has an incredible background. He is the author of Divided We Stand, The Search for America's Soul, and also the author of The Construction and Rearticulation of Race in a Post-Racial America. He has degrees from Oxford, Columbia, a PhD in International Legal Philosophy from the University of Aberdeen. He's former faculty at Cornell University former professor and senior associate dean at Georgetown University, and today he is a senior fellow at the Thomas Jefferson University Institute of Emerging Health Professions. Now, if that wasn't enough, he has regular appearances on CNN, ABC, MSNBC, Fox News, Al Jazeera, HLN, Newsmax, CBN, OAN, WHDT-TV, BBC, TV One, News One, Celebrity Page TV After Buzz and now Unstructured. This is Unstructured. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Metzler. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Wow, it's a, it's a real honor, and I mean, you have a staggering educational background. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. How, how did you um, wind up at the University of Oxford? Well, I am originally from the Caribbean. I was born uh, in the country of Grenada. Uh, Grenada used to be um, owned by first the French and then the British, and so the educational system in Grenada um, has been modeled on Oxford and the UK and any, you know, any of those um, kind of institutions. And so it was always a dream of mine to end up at Oxford, not as an undergrad, because I didn't really, you know, undergrads at Oxford as undergrads at, at so many other places. It's all about the drinking game. I wasn't really ready for that. Um, but really as a, as a postgrad. Uh, so it was a fantastic experience. It was really a dream for me all along. Okay, that's fascinating. And, and I definitely want to touch into it because I feel like you're in an awkward position in today's political climate <laughs> or what could be seen as such. Yeah. Um, Essentially, you're a black conservative. Yes. Very awkward position. Um, so there are a couple of, of, of things. It's, it's, it's very funny. Um, a colleague of mine who we've been friends for a long time. We disagree uh, politically. Uh, and then finally last night, he sends me a random text. And the random text says, you know, um, you... I know that you're black and you're conservative, and I've known that all along, uh, but I think our friendship needs to end, uh, hashtag sellout. Um, and I did as I always do when I receive um, such comments. I just wrote back, uh, good luck to you. Uh, because I'm not, I'm not going to engage in a whole big discussion about that. Um, but part of that is because the notion of being black and conservative seems in today's modern climate to be a contradiction when in fact it is not. Um, blacks traditionally, yeah. Um, blacks as a culture traditionally are, are very religious, aren't they? Yeah. And, and you put on top of that for me, um, not only the religious aspect, but the fact that I am from the West Indies, and in the West Indies, we are much more conservative than the United States. So I wanted to talk about that, too, and that's part yeah. of the reason I brought the black conservative is that um, I'm quite sure you're familiar with Thomas Sowell. Of course, of course, absolutely. And Colin Powell, and if yeah. I recall, they both are of Caribbean descent. Yes, yes. So and there's uh, definitely a... Uh, I'd say a tension between the African American versus the Caribbean. Yeah. Yes, background. Would you agree? I agree. There is a huge um, tension, and part of it has been, uh, you know, we did not grow up 
in societies where there was an expectation that the government would um, support you and support you and support you. We did not have, you know, generations of people on public assistance and all of those kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting that blacks were the only ones on public assistance or anything like that. But in the context of this conversation, um, we didn't have that. And so for us, it was opportunity and taking advantage of that opportunity. There was never an expectation that the government would do anything for us. You didn't rely on the government to do it. You did it yourself. You relied on the government to give opportunity and to get barriers out of the way. And so we then are legal immigrants coming to this country, trying to really live the way that we have grown up. And that's where the clash um, goes. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on the Caribbean culture. So if I'm completely out of line, correct me. Sure. Um. Is there a touch of corruption in governments? Oh, yes. It may affect the attitude of less government because I see a lot of government and a lot of it has been corrupt traditionally. Oh, yeah. Well, in the, in, 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 and that's another reason why you can't rely on the government to do anything for you in the Caribbean. Um, writ large, um, it is because a lot of the politicians and the government workers in the Caribbean do suffer from corruption. Um, the, 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 the latest kind of uh, what I call corruption scheme in the Caribbean is selling passports. Um, so what they do is they have this um, citizenship by investment deal mm. where you can become a citizen of, say, Grenada for $550,000 U.S. Well, People would say, well, why would you want to be a citizen of Grenada? Because you cannot buy property in the country unless you are, in fact, a citizen. And so the ability to buy property on an island such as Grenada, for example, which is one of the last unspoiled bastions in the Caribbean, water, um, agriculture, all of those kinds of things. And so... There is that. There is no question that there is a bit of corruption in the Caribbean. Okay. And I was, um, back in the 90s, I'm aging myself, I was stationed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and I Uh cared for Cuban refugees. Yes. And, well, I'm a simple person, but they were in the water trying to go one direction and not the other. Oh, that's that's right. And, I mean, that's just that that's, you know. That's the nature of the beast in the Caribbean. And so, you know, you you do your best to get away from that. Uh, and for us, the opportunity has always been through um, education, and in particular, education and entrepreneurship. Okay. Now, that leads into, I guess, the... Next subject, which I'd like to break down, what is a conservative? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to use like mirrors to help define it further. So can we explore like what is a conservative versus, let's say, what is a libertarian? Because right. Both don't care for too much government. Right, right, right. So when you have, you know, for me, when you traditionally talk about a conservative, you are talking about someone who first and foremost believes in the the fundamental nature of the Constitution. That is, um, we do not believe that, in fact, um, the Constitution is to be interpreted. Um, Okay, so it's a dead document versus a living document? Yeah, because this notion of a a living document doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, if you look at the words of the Constitution, the, the, the words are clear. Um, and so for us, if it when it comes to justices reviewing um, the law, if they see something that they don't believe should happen and the law should be changed, it is not up to them to change it. It is up to Congress uh, to, to change 
that. Uh, so there is that. There is the notion of religious liberty, uh, religious freedom. There is economic freedom. There is free speech. Um, there is, and people often say to me, I'll put it this way. People often say to me, um, what is it that you're trying to conserve? I don't know that there's something we're trying to quote unquote conserve. What we're looking at is the best of the past without erasing history. Um, and then using that to develop the best of the present and the future. Is now, this like um, Chesterton's fence? Yes, absolutely. You got it right. You got it. You got it um, right. Okay, and to to make sure I get that correct, it's essentially if you see a fence out there, you don't just tear it down. You need to research the reason right. the fence was actually put into place. Right, and 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 that's the problem we have, for example, with um, Confederate the the removal of statutes uh, um, of the Confederacy, you know, for me, the removal of those statutes and monuments is an attempt to erase history. The fact is, rightly or wrongly, that is a part of history. So how do you not repeat a history you even know existed? Um, and so that's a major part of it. For I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, and sure. I'm not necessarily against you, but I I have such mixed <laughs> feelings about that because, mm-hmm. one, I'm in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Yeah. And there is definitely a tradition in the South, and I respect that. You know, Robert E. Lee is a yes. revered figure around a lot of the areas, and not because – he was a slaveholder. Right. He didn't. I don't even know that he was. I I, yeah, I don't know that he was. Slavery. Right. But um, he was a considered a good general. Yeah. So he's militarily very um, admired. But at the same time, it's hard for me to go, well, we're okay and kind of thrilled when the people in Iraq were tearing down Saddam statues. Yeah, we were because what, what we do sometimes in the context of, of America, whether we are conservative, liberal, libertarian, etc. Um, we are somewhat hypocritical in the sense that we say <laughs> it's great to do that, just not do it here. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that because for me, all that cheering relative to I, I, I found that to actually be anti-conservative. Um, okay. Well, I, that's why I wanted to cover it. So. Yeah. I, I I just I thought my goodness you know what if that happened here and in fact when it is happening here then we're up in arms thus the hypocrisy. So essentially, you feel that some of the statues are are actually offensive and they're offensive people. I I, I do I but do. But we have to acknowledge their right. existence. Yeah yeah and I yeah some of them are in fact offensive, <laughs> very offensive statues and very offensive people. But I do think it's important to acknowledge their existence as part of history for the full context of history. Because the other thing is what we tend to do in our educational system here is if the um, statute has been taken down or the monument's been taken down, then we tend to erase it from our textbooks. Um, and so there's not a, another way of learning that this, in fact, existed. Uh, so that's the I suppose there's another way. I suppose you could research it, but you'd have to know to want to even research it. Random thought about that. Is this a situation where, I mean, it can be taken both ways, but by having a statue of the person that really looks like the person you can face. Yeah the the evil person but yet see that they're actually a human right so one would say oh you're humanizing but then another could say well you need to see that they really are human and all of us can be a monster and and that's i i think that is in fact um you know accurate i mean this notion of um, you know humanizing uh stuff i think sometimes is is sadly out of context but i think your context there um is correct okay so where does conservatism depart from the libertarianism? Well, you see, here's the thing. So when 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 you look at libertarianism, you're talking about really 
political philosophy, you know, movements that uphold kind of liberty as a, uh, a core principle. Um, there is this freedom of choice piece um, that I'm not sure uh, how far they take that uh, freedom of choice uh, piece because um, we always have that um, we, we, we always have <laughs> that, that debate. Um, and, and the other thing too is the, the, the whole notion of kind of you can do whatever you want so long as you respect the right of the other person to do the same. I am not sure where that leads. Um, go further on that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just think um, for me, so I have, so long as I, you know, respect the other person, they can do what they want. It To me, it's kind of like, just do whatever you want. And that's why I stay away from kind of the libertarian belief. I'm with them on the freedom piece. Um, and, and the other thing too, is that they believe that on every issue, doesn't matter what the issue is, you have the right to decide for yourself what's best for you on every issue. I, I'm not mm, not sure about that. Is the, is the pro-life, pro-choice starting yes. to wiggle into that? Yeah. There is actually a libertarian case for pro-life too. So oh, yeah. It's a weird one because um, libertarians are big believers in property as well as conservatives right. from what I understand. Right. And the first piece of property is oneself. Right. So it's all in a perspective. The libertarian perspective can be interpreted two ways. One, it could be um, the female's property is her body, but then right. there's a libertarian argument saying that the fetus has yes. its own property. and Correct. So that's one of those squirrely ones where I don't know which way they would fall. And, and, and that's the big issue, you know, and that's where my libertarian friends and I often have debates because – I, I just don't know where they're going to go with that because if you have, I, I think your analysis here is spot on uh, relative to um, the pro-life, pro-choice uh, arguments. Well, good. Yeah, I definitely don't want to uh, take it too far now. Uh, you were talking about the um, harm, and I believe there's a saying that uh, your right stop at my nose. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> which is not necessarily a bad thing. It sounds like you're saying, though, that maybe you as a conservative feel that there could be a touch more moral guidance. I, and that is exactly right. I, 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 you know, whenever you have such squiggly, the, uh, squiggly, not clear kind of things, then in fact, if you don't have that moral guidance, the moral guidance to me is what allows you to make the right choice. Um, and when I talk about moral guidance, people then say, there you go, Bible thumping again. And I'm actually not Bible thumping. I'm simply saying morality in and of itself is not necessarily religious um, it, it, it's a question of your own morals and values. Do you believe in shame then? Oh, absolutely. So as an example, and we can move off of the religious front, um, in a society or a family, if it's considered shameful to have a kid and then leave that family, right? maybe that's better as a society. Is that kind of where you're going? Yes, that is exactly where I'm going. That is exactly where I'm going. Okay. Um, do you want to elucidate any more on that? No, I, I think I'm pretty clear on that. <laughs> That's you know because I think I you know leaving the family in some cases is is probably the rest the best thing for all involved. Mm, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I I know it's funny. Um, on occasion, I've listened to Adam Carolla in the past. Yeah. I think he has a interesting point when he said almost all problems can be solved by having two parents at home. Yeah, and, and and you know what? I think he's right. I absolutely think he's right. All right, so now I want to turn again, um, and 
we'll move away from conservative and we'll talk about a populist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a populist from what I understand is not necessarily right wing. Now we'll say that libertarian can be right or left conservative generally is considered to the right, right? A populist could be to the right or it could be to the left. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where, so we see both the right and the left, I think, in modern day times, um, competing for, you know, the hearts and minds of populists, of course, with different messages. So, for example, on the right, um, you know, our conversation is around, uh, people who have been, uh, disenfranchised who really have been taken over um, by elites, uh, people for whom who are disposable in the view of elites. Um, you know that kind of that that's been you know our our view. I think in the current election um, and political climate, some people in fact, have said that President Trump is, in fact, a populist. I think that's a fair analogy. Um, Ironically, so is Bernie Sanders. Well, and that's where exactly where I was going to go. Bernie Sanders is is interesting in in the populist arena. He has a populist philosophy. He touts a populist message, just like he does a socialist message. Um, but the same kind of elite class that he is, <clears throat> excuse me, railing against, he is a part of from a financial and other standpoint. So that's an interesting case study in and of itself. Um, Ironically, so is Trump. Oh, yeah. But he admits it. So it's, it's, it, it well, is a, a thing. He admits it. Yeah, he he admits it. Bernie, you know, did all these machinations and finally had to admit it because his taxes would reveal that. Trump was very clear. He did not try to pretend um, <laughs> that he's not part of the elite. He never tried to do that. But and and that's that's I think the difference uh, the difference there. But I will have to say that it seems like conservatives have torn themselves into knots about Trump because he's not a conservative and he definitely is not a social conservative. He is not a family man. (laughs) However, he wants to spin it out. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. There is kind of a, who is he thing, (laughs) you know, that's going on. And that's been part of the discussion. Um, And conservatives are a bit flummoxed about it because uh, you know, a number of them said, well, so what do we do? What is he going to, what is he going to do here? What is he going to, and it's, it's, it's difficult to tell. Um, however, what he has been able to do is build a very solid, loyal base of supporters. And then the conservatives, most of the conservatives have followed. Others have broken away. Um, but you know, that, that's, I I think that's where we find ourselves because if you were to look at a traditional conservative, absolutely not. Um, but I think what has happened here is given the conservatives are saying, okay, well, we've got the courts. He's doing a solid job with the courts. We're concerned about the economy. He's doing a good job on that. Um, And so that's kind of how we've morphed into where we are today. Now, out of curiosity, though, because my biggest problem personally is I can't stand purity. Right. And I can't help but think that maybe we've never seen a pure conservative the same way as we've never seen socialism work. Well, and you can't, in, in an American society that is as diverse, as fractured, and as divided as we are, a pure conservative cannot, 
cannot and will not exist um, because this pure conservative would have too strict to stick to strict conservative doctrine. And I don't know that in this country, given the political times, given the climate, given the social climate, that that would work. In fact, I think it would be an abject failure. Okay. Well, and I wanted to, you know, definitely explore that. And does that lead into what I think is one of your mission statements, make America nice again? Yeah, because I do think, you know, we, we've gotten to the point where we have weaponized so much. Uh, we've lost senses of civility uh, that, you know, we have to recognize that in America, we are not a monolith. And given that we're not a monolith, how do we best uh, work together to make America nice again? I mean, that's, that's the whole thing for me. And we're a long ways away from that uh, because we're simply too divided. And I don't necessarily think that division is a bad thing because I think in division you find different ideas. The problem is that hasn't worked in the current uh, political climate. And it's not a climate that started with President Trump at all, as long as, as much as people um, want to say it. That's simply not the case. So as a result of that, I, I, I think, you know, at some point we're going to have to uh, change the direction and the trajectory. Okay. I had a previous guest on and he told me a quotation. I don't know if it's from him or whomever, but it really gave me pause. And it was essentially that quote, I have come to realize that I am federally libertarian state Republican or conservative municipal yeah, municipality, more liberal or Democrat neighborhood, friends, and family, mm-hmm. socialist. Right. Is there maybe a nugget of truth to that, that at different levels in different places, there is a more appropriate government? Because obviously your family is a commune. It's the actual yeah. basis of a commune, I'd hope. Not everybody can do the same thing. Everyone provides what they can with whatever abilities they have. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that's I think that's right because, and again, given that we, if we look at our system of government, you know, local politics, local government is a whole, um, a whole lot different than federal government or even state government. So I, I think there is a, a kernel of truth there, and we ignore it though. We're worried about what Trump is doing, but he doesn't affect us directly. No, right, right, right. I I think you're right. And that, you know, I think of Tip O'Neill. All politics is local. Yep. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, that brings me to another question, because the closest that we're going to get to the federal is our, quote, local congressman. Yeah. And... I have a theory that half of our problems is that Congress has abdicated the responsibilities. Uh, that is absolutely right. That's why we are where we are. And not only has Congress abdicated the responsibility, their responsibilities, I also think that the people, the electorate, has also abdicated their responsibility because they do not hold their elected officials accountable. Then they scream, throw the bums out, except for my bum, because my bum's a good bum. Um, it's like lawyers. And we all hate lawyers right. except for our own lawyer. I, exactly. And that's the major that's the major part of the problem. And you know, I have and continue to argue for term limits. A lot of, you know, people disagree with me on that, saying, well, term limits are not in the Constitution, but also not in the Constitution were the two four-year terms for the President of the United States. Um, So I'm not buying that argument. 
it is time for the people, though, to take back government. And they sit there and they moan and they complain. And they, and, and yet they put the same person back in office over and over again. And so they've abdicated the responsibility, I think, uh, that the Congress people spend more time on business that is not the people's business, um, especially if I'm running for president or higher office or anything like that, how much time am I really doing the people's work? And, and, and that concerns me greatly. You brought up a really good point. I do think that the founding fathers had a blind spot. Yes. And they did not consider the, um, term limits because our first example of a president was Washington. He said, okay, we'll do two. That's enough. Everybody figured, okay, well, here's the tradition. Everybody who followed did, you know, did one or two in the case you might, you know, get knocked out and then come back in that happened, but it was sort of seen as eh, about eight years. That's enough. It wasn't until the 20th century. Somebody said, nope, no rules. Right. Just keep running and running and running and right. running. And at the same time, their other blind spot I feel is they were a sh- they were sure, and especially Jefferson, I think that each branch was going to fight tooth and nail to hold on to as much power as they could. Right. But things have shifted to where Congress said. Well, I don't want to actually approve going to war. Uh-huh. So um, <clears throat> I, I'll just say that I was against it, but I want to actually vote on it. Right. You know what? I don't want to actually hold companies responsible for polluting. So you you go ahead, create an agency to watch right. that. And that is exactly right. And that's why we are where we are. And so and and it's amazing to me now because looking at the fights that's going on. Uh, with the House and the President, look, they have abdicated a lot of that responsibility. And so as a result of that, they're going to take it to the courts. The courts will decide eventually, if they even take it up, because I think in some of these cases, the courts are simply going to say, oh, we're not taking that up. That's a political question. Um, And we don't adjudicate political questions. So that is exactly what you're saying, because you're right. They, they did not because they don't want to go on the record saying I voted for war. Uh, so as a result of that, we find ourselves in the situation where they have given um, such power to the president. Now they're trying to take it back. And good luck with that, especially with this president, because he's simply not going to sit there and let you do it. Yeah, and it's really, really frustrating to consider, too. And also, is the other problem that we have directly elected senators? I mean, it was important that they had senators who were representing the state. Right. So the state's power would be there. They weren't actually supposed to serve the people. They're supposed to serve the state needs last time I checked. Right, right. That's correct. Yeah, they were supposed to serve the state, but we all know. But that's, you know, not what's going on. Right. Because of the direct vote. Right. Then they have to raise money. Yeah. And then they're beholden to whichever business or union or, you know, because on both sides. Well, yeah. And that's the thing, you know, with with raising this money, um, you know, they they that's who part of the problem. People, for example, have conversations about. Uh, the insurance lobby and um, the high cost of prescription drugs and what insurance carriers can get away with and not get away with. What oftentimes people don't understand is that the Senate, the House and Senate staffs are so small that, in fact, they don't have the expertise to write the legislation. So what ends up happening is that the people who are being regulated usually suggest legislation to them. And of course, they're not going to suggest legislation to them. That's going to be against their interest. They even write it for them. too. They write it for them. 
And that's the problem. And so, of course, they're going to write it for them. Yet, uh, you know, the, the, and, and then, of course, we know half, more than half the time, they don't even read the legislation. They get a briefing from their staffs. And if you look at a number of their staffs, a number of their staffs are quite young. Um, and so as a result of that, they don't really understand the policy implications and how this works and a, a, any of those kinds of things. So they're briefing them. And in some cases, the briefing that they've provided to their congressperson is our briefing notes that have come from, for example, the insurance lobby. So <laughs> given that, it's the best government you can buy. Well, and it gets worse, too, because we've got the fourth estate. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And they all work for the corporations, oh, ultimately. Yes. And if not that, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Trust Me, I'm Lying. Oh, I have. It's a great book. Okay. That, I think, is showing the exact same example being used on the press, where you can have operators who will write a blog post, and they know – to place it in the blogs, which blogs these reporters are reading. Right. And then they pick it up and run with it. Of course. All the way to the Covington kids who oh, yeah. got started out of a, a tweet storm from Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the whole that's the whole thing. The fourth estate, I am probably um, one of the biggest critics of the fourth estate. Because look, I I believe that they should, t you know, they all have political leanings, whatever those political leanings are. Okay, fine. But you ought not say that you are objectively reporting anything because you're not. And that's the problem that I have. Say, listen, this is my opinion. Then I'll turn it off. And, and, and for me, I don't want you to give you my you you're, you're trying to give me my opinion <laughs> you know because instead of telling me what the facts are then you're saying okay well here's the inside scoop and and we have so many people now who citizens who simply don't investigate because they have become so lazy um i go back to a major part of that is taking civics civics education out of schools um and and we are just in a situation where whatever the news says, whether that news is TV, whether it's streaming, Internet, whatever it is, people believe that. And they believe these anchors are the purveyors of truth when they are not. They're not the purveyors of, of anything but their own agenda. Oftentimes, it's going to be the corporate agenda because the corporate agenda owns them. That's the bottom line. And that's why I think in this whole fight with the president and Jeff Bezos, the president's absolutely right. Look, Bezos has his corporate interests. He owns the Washington Post. And there you have it. Carlos Slim. Yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Exactly. Um, also, does this stem out of, you know how I was saying that time has changed things yeah. in ways we didn't expect? Right. Well, back when the Constitution was written, there was two newspapers yeah. in almost every city. Yeah. And one was right and one was left. Right. And they wrote well, somebody was just plain dirty. Yeah. But you could get you could read, okay, well, that's what the right wingers say, that's what left wingers say. Right. Eh, something in the middle. Exactly. And I think that that's I wish we would get back. Um <laughs> we would get back to that. It but not in the kind of way that we have it now where we cloak it in a objectivity because if you know we look at a lot of the stations we know it's clear cnn msnbc have declared themselves to be left-leaning um fox has declared itself to be right um leaning uh so we know that um what i do like <clears throat> about Fox News, though, is the news division, for the most part, provides news. I don't care um, which network it is. Just tell us who you are and what you're doing. I mean, we can figure it out for ourselves. 
just don't cloak it in objectivity and just don't tell me you're reporting the facts because you're not. Okay. So now we have laid out all the problems. Yes. Now your small tax task is uh, fix it. Yeah. So there are a couple of things. First on my list, as I said earlier, is is term limits. I think that's that's number one. I think number okay. two, um, we've got to get back to holding politicians responsible. The people have to get more involved in politics. Now, when I say that, people say, well, I really don't have time for that. I have to do this. I have to do that. And my response is, okay, fine understand that, but then don't complain about the government you have or the situation in which we uh, in which we find ourselves. So I think that's number two. I think number three, it goes back to education. Um, I have been a professor on two of the most liberal campuses in the country, Georgetown and Cornell, uh, and to look at the indoctrination that goes on at the university level is shameful um, because professors are to get back to uh, the kind of professors we had, for example, um, at Oxford where they would lay the facts out. You would make the case and they would not come to a conclusion as to whether you're right or wrong. They would simply point out the flaws in your argument and you do what you, uh, what you will with that. The other issue I think we have to address the continued, uh, influence of unions on our lives. Um, the unions are so political. The whole kind of forcing people to pay dues and then, um, although the, the courts struck down a major part of that, but taking those dues um, to contribute heavily to political campaigns, that issue, um, I, I think, definitely has to be addressed. The issue of the media has to be addressed. Um, what What do we consider... Uh, as the public news, what do we consider opinion and what do we do with it? I think we also have to return to civil um, conversations and, you know, stop really weaponizing a number of things. We've rep- weaponized, I think, in, in, in such a large part in this country, we've wep- weaponized the issue of race. Um, that has become just, you know, a shame. It's one of the issues that we've weaponized, and I think we have to move from that. So that's just, those are just some of my thoughts. How would you propose we, I almost feel like we need to force um, diversity of thought integration. Yes. Versus racial. I agree. I agree. Because it doesn't matter and I say this to people all, all the time. If why the reason that you want me to work with you um, is because I am black, I am not interested um, because that is not what I'm bringing to the table. In addition to skills, I am bringing to the table different thoughts and different ideas. That is what solves the problem. If, if, if the goal is visual representation, we've already lost. That is number one, a stupid goal. And number two, it's unrealistic and it doesn't help solve problems. The thing about ideas is that we get to work through ideas no matter what our differences are. Uh, we get to work through similarities and differences. Um, and when I say that, people say to me, well, you know, what about people who are just outright racist? How is this? You know, the people who are outright racist are outright racist. There's not a whole lot that can be done about that. But I do think it's prob- it, it's a whole lot less than people um, think it is. But I do think that forcing racial diversity has gotten us to where we are. I have a question on that. I I almost hate to go down this path. Yeah. I kind of feel like sometimes 
what we view as racist, there's the blatant, obvious racism. Yeah. And then there's the, um, what is it, soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. Which I actually think is not a soft bigotry. I think it's a huge bigotry. It is. It is. And we have a problem identifying who are actually the racists sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I think we, 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 we do. And, and the thing for me is that bigotry of low expectations, when I see it, I call it out. Um, because this is where it, it's, it's put in this um, politically correct kind of language and jargon. And as a result of that, it's just, oh, well, that person was able to perform. No, yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, But I think that has to be uh, pointed out because it is, in fact, difficult uh, to, to, in many cases, uh, point that out. And for me, I've got to tell you that the people I have experienced um, more um, kind of condescending tones from white liberals than anyone else, because I think white liberals believe, at least in my experience, that to the extent that they call people by the right name, African-American or um, Asian-American or whatever, then that means something. Well, it means nothing. Um, you know, the, the, the question really is, how do you value that person? And again, I go back to diversity of thought as being the great equalizer here. And I've said that for years. I think you are right, but I'm not going to let the right off the hook here. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, I think that you definitely, just what you described there, you have the pious right. Yeah. That's their blind spot. Right. They're better than you. They're more moral than you. Right. Some of them. And then you have the smug left. I think and that's, that's the ugly, ugliness of both sides coming out. Yeah, because I, I don't think it's it, it's certainly not just the left. It's certainly, you, you know, as you put it correctly, I think the pious right as well. Um, so there there is uh, there is that as well. And also, you're in a position, and I have a feeling you've suffered being extraordinarily welcome to conservative circles because you represent as a black person and they struggle. Yeah. So you take it both ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, you know, I use it as a teachable moment and a teachable experience um, because, you know, as a black conservative, as a black man, um, with my background and my experience, you know, a lot of times there is this, oh, um, you know, I didn't know that uh, you could have achieved um, such possibilities. Well, what does that even mean? Um, you know, at that point, I'll have to <laughs> point it out. Um, you know, I, I don't see and I've never seen um, race as an impediment to success. Uh, <laughs> what I always like is when people um, would underestimate me because by the time they catch up or try to catch up, I've already won. Um, is that like Biden saying of Obama early on? He's so articulate. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. You know, it's just really, and I, I just, you know, I, I, it's, it's one of those things that I, I just don't dwell on that stuff because I think there are people who mean well. I think there are people who mean, who are just evil people. I mean, that's just life. Yeah. And I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but there's also people raised when we take, uh, there's a saying I heard from a friend that science moves a graveyard at a time. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love that. I kind of feel like culture too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I think I, I, I think you're right. I mean, for me, um, the whole idea of culture is a whole other interesting discussion we can get into. <laughs> we definitely don't have time for that. Yeah. To wrap up, can we talk about your book? Yeah. So my book is called "Divided We Stand: The Search for America's Soul," available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And what the, is it on Audible? 
I don't know if it is or not. I'm pretty sure. Audiobook. Yeah, look and say I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, oh, cool. But uh, what, what the book does is really explains how we got where we are, meaning how did we become such a divided America? Uh, it, it really looks at philosophies. It looks at approach. It's historical in context because it traces division. I use um, not too many, but a lot of references so people can do further reading. Uh, I talk about uh, white liberals. I, I talk about um, the issue of race. I also discuss uh, the Constitution, what the Constitution is, what the Constitution is not. Talk about the media, uh, economic prosperity, and then look at uh, the 2020 election and some of the things that will be necessary to bring the country to being a less divided state. I, I, I country, I, you look, I, every country has a sense of division. The question is, to what point do you get so far that you can't pull back from the brink? And that's really uh, what the book talks about. Excellent. So really a lot of what we were talking about is yes, in the book. It is. It is. It, it, it's a further uh, explanation. And it's it's an easy read. You know, some of my um, academic colleagues have said to me, well, you know, you didn't use a lot of really big words in the book. And this is. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Coming through. Um, I said, no, I want people to just be able to pick the book up do an easy read and that's it. <laughs> you know, yeah. tell, tell them to read, um, Robert Cialdini. Oh yes, 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 yes. Oh yeah. Because they're, you know, they're in a whole a different, uh, universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. So we can say that this interview is a primer. Now go get the book. Absolutely. Got it. Well, excellent. And now people can find out more about you through drchristophermetzler.com. Yes. And on all of my social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's doc, it's at Dr. Chris Metzler. Okay, great. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, my friend. I do appreciate it. it a great interview. And I, I do thank you for um, allowing me to uh, spend some time with you today. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Susan C. Bennett, the original voice of Siri. Randall Kenneth Jones likes to talk, and he loves to listen. Over the past few years, more than 100 people, celebrities, newsmakers, thought leaders, rock stars, journalists, artists, humanitarians, and more, have chatted with Randy about the ups and downs and the ins and outs of a life well-lived. So if you like conversation, laughter, and thought, Jones.show is for you. Subscribe for free to Jones.show on iTunes, Google, or your preferred podcast platform. Hi, this is Kara Mayer-Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 